Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come now to open your word, we are so thankful for your presence here with us. We're thankful for the time of, of worship that you've allowed us to participate in, the, the connection with you that we experience when we sing your praises. We're grateful for that gift. God, we pray that um, you grant us now, as we look in your word, just understanding, uh, perspective. Um, help us to, to uh, see things as you would have us see things. Help each person here to uh, engage and understand your word, even, even beyond my capacity to express or explain what it is uh, we're, we're dealing with here today, Lord. Uh, just move in a supernatural way, God. Draw those uh, who are here to you and help, uh, help us to, to realize and recognize um, the demand you have on our lives. And uh, we are just so grateful for your goodness and mercy. In Christ's name, amen. So growing up in a Baptist church when I was a, a little kid, um, I heard this phrase a lot. Um, and everybody talked about it and everybody believed it. So I just kind of assumed it was what everybody believed. And that was the, the idea of uh, the age of accountability. And what they meant by that was that there's an age, and for each child it's different, but there's an age at which a child suddenly becomes accountable to God for his sin and for his life and, or her life and, and for their experience. And, and it's at that point, once they reach that age, which usually is linked to some sort of knowledge or understanding or perception, that they uh, uh, become susceptible to, to hell. Okay? But before that age, this this belief says before this that before that age, because of their lack of understanding, because of their ability to reason or perceive or discern exactly what's meant by the whole idea of salvation, that it, should they die, should they pass, um, they go to heaven, just because that's you know how God works. That would be fair of God. That would be just of God. And so. Um, that was basically what I believed, what I understood, what I what I perceived to be the truth growing up. Um, it really wasn't until college or perhaps late high school that I began to hear other people say, maybe that's not the case. Maybe that's not how the situation works. That maybe children are judged just the way everybody else is. And I started to hear different perceptions on this issue. And... and um, and so today, I want to address that. We're, we're in a series talking about heaven, the life to come. And um, connected to that is this issue of children in heaven. And is there an, such a thing as an age of accountability? And where this really grows out of, let's be honest, is, is a sense of fairness. That's, that's kind of where this whole discussion starts, is it not? I mean, that, that we look at children who are could not possibly understand the issue of salvation. We just sang at Calvary. There's a lot of depth in that hymn. There's a lot of real meat. You, and, and I've been studying God's Word most of my life, and I'm considered by some an expert in it, and there's still a lot that are way beyond me. It's way beyond me. So how can we expect a child to understand, to respond to those sorts of things, uh, we find ourselves in a similar position to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. And we're going to be looking at a lot of scripture passages today um, just because the nature of this discussion requires it. Uh, normally I work with one scripture passage. We're going to be jumping around quite a bit. 
uh, today. Uh, so I would encourage you to, to have a, a pencil or a pen or something handy to write down some of these passages because I'm not going to be able to, to spend a lot of time on each of them, and I want to make sure that you can go back and look at what I've mentioned here because, again, at the end of the day, the authority is not me. The authority is God's Word. And I'm only an authority insofar as I stay close to what God's Word says. The moment I step away from God's Word, I lose my authority to say what I say. Okay, So I want you, I want you to dig into this. I want you to look in God's Word as well and, and, and to, to see what He has to say there. But, but in Genesis 18, Abraham is talking with God. And he's talking about the city of Sodom and how God has said He's going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham is pleading with God on behalf of the city. Okay? And, and he, he utters these words to God. He says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, what's right, what's fair? And you have this, this exchange that, that's connected to this idea of, of innocence, of righteousness, of those who don't know and those who are doing right. And, and you group them all together. This is at the heart of the discussion of children uh, and heaven. This is at the heart of that debate. Because I think most of us would describe children, uh, especially babies, as innocent. I mean, that, that's one of our phrases in our, in our vocabulary, is it not? It's innocent as a baby. Look at that innocent little baby. We, we hear that all the time. And, and, and so that brings in this whole discussion. What if, sadly, that baby passes? What about a miscarried child? What about a child who, for some reason, dies at a very young age? How does God handle that? And, and there's, there's really two things that make this difficult for us. One is just the emotions involved. Okay. I mean, just to think about a child suffering in any way is to bring on the tears, to bring on the sorrow, to bring on the grief, to bring on the sadness. That makes the discussion difficult. Because when you when you bring in especially the depth of feeling that are on this level, uh, that are related to this issue, a lot of times judgment can go out can just go out. I mean, like, I don't care what that says, or I don't care what you say, or whatever. This is how I feel, and this is what I want to believe. The second thing that makes it difficult is that there's no unequivocal teaching in Scripture on the matter. There's nothing in Scripture that explicitly says, this is what happens to a child before they understand. It's just not present, Okay. I mean, you have some passages that people try and draw on for this sort of thing. 2 Samuel 12, 23, where David has lost his baby. And he says there, I sh he shall not come again to me, but I shall go to him. You have that phrase. But that, the language that David's using there is not, does not encompass, is not meant to discuss or even allude to the idea of an afterlife. It's very common language that was used in cultures that didn't even believe in an afterlife, I shall be collected to my fathers, is the idea. And, and that, that's an expression that you see in cultures all over the ancient world, especially for kings who didn't even have a belief in an afterlife. 
and we know they didn't have a belief in an afterlife, but they, they talk about being collected to their fathers. And so David's words there really don't arise to any sort of clear expectation. It opens the door to it, but it certainly doesn't teach that. It doesn't explicitly express that. And so because we don't have clear, unequivocal teachings, then that leads us to what we call systematic theology. And systematic theology is simply a way of dealing with the Bible through a system. In other words, you have a way of taking the scriptures and bringing them together to draw some conclusions about things. And we use this in a lot of doctrines, a lot of ideas that scriptures don't clearly unequivocally teach. For instance, the Trinity. We talk about the Trinity. Okay, We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay, All three are God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father. Okay, three persons, one God. That's what we teach. There's no scripture passage that unequivocally teaches that. But we draw that from a number of different passages, bringing them together into a system to draw that conclusion. Where you have Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the God, God is one. There's one God. Clearly taught. But then you have other expressions throughout that talk about the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet they're clearly distinct individuals. You see that at the baptism of Jesus, for instance, where you have all three persons present, separate, but present uh, at that experience. So that's systematic theology, and that's what we have to do with this particular topic in terms of bringing things together. And, and what that means is that we're going to disagree at times and in places. Because different systems draw different conclusions. Okay, uh, For instance, those who are Calvinist, that is a reformed belief, those who, uh, to put it another way, uh, they believe in predestination. Okay, They believe that God, before the foundation of the earth, determined who would go to heaven and who would go to hell. That's their belief system. That's their system by which they evaluate things, by which they understand certain things. They will argue what? Well, some of those children who die, some of them will be in heaven, some won't. And it's dependent upon what? God's foreordained decision as to what happens to that child. That's how they'll answer that question. That's how they'll respond to it. And they'll say we have some evidence in Scripture that kind of helps us uh, understand that, that God does, in fact, seem to set certain children apart. Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you in your mother's womb before you were born. The story in Luke 1.15 where Elizabeth visits Mary and says that when John enters into the presence, the, the baby in, in Elizabeth's womb, when he enters into the presence of Jesus in Mary's womb, that he leapt, he, he leaped within Elizabeth. Okay, And the, the Luke explicitly says there that there's a recognition of John that Jesus is God. He explicitly says that. You have Psalm 22.9, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. In other words, even as a baby, I trusted in you. Okay, So Calvinists will look at those passages and, see, and say, well, see, here are some passages that point in that direction. But here's the problem. 
The problem with that is all of those passages are poetic. Poetic passages are very difficult to draw doctrine from. Why? Because poetry, by its very nature, is what? It exaggerates. It uses hyperbole. It uses generalized statements, very powerful statements, but you can't draw specifics from it. Okay? You know, when I, when I talk to my wife and say, you know, your eyes are as blue as a, a clear mountain lake, which they are. They're wonderful. But anyway, if I say that, okay, that's figurative. It's powerful, okay, if she doesn't laugh at me. It's powerful, but it's what? It's not specific. I can draw, I can draw what conclusions? That her eyes are probably blue. Okay. But what other things can I draw from that? Can I say her eyes are cold and wet? Because that's what a mountain lake is like. Okay. What are some other things we know about mountain lakes that we can draw? You see, you can't push the image too far. The type of image it is just doesn't allow it. And this plays into other passages as well, such as, as Psalm 51 and, and uh, Psalm 58. And Job 14, where it talks about in iniquity, in sin I was conceived. What does that mean? When Paul, or excuse me, when David says, in sin I was conceived. It doesn't necessarily teach original sin. It could simply mean somewhere in my backstory, perhaps with my parents or further back, there was sin involved in how I was conceived, how I came to be doesn't necessarily mean I myself am a sinner at that point. So I say all that to say this. You have this difficulty because the Bible doesn't teach it explicitly. And so systems have been developed to try and explain it. What that then means is this. We need to be gracious and patient and humble when we're dealing with people who have a different view than us who have a different perspective on this issue than us. Certainly argue our point. Certainly be clear in, in terms of what we believe and what we hold to, but also understand they're doing their best to try and piece these things together too. They're trying to draw conclusions as well. So with that in mind, let's jump into it. And let's simply ask this question. What is the child, a child, before an age of knowledge or reason or understanding, what is their spiritual status before God? What does Scripture tell us is their situation? A good place to start, I think, is in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 14, this is what Paul writes there. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of one who was to come. So what's going on here in terms of what Paul's saying? Paul is writing to the Romans, the, the, the Christians there in Rome, and he's trying to explain to them, the whole book of Romans is, is built around this idea that both the Jew and the Gentile need Jesus. Okay, That's the book of Romans in a nutshell. That, that's, that's his reason for writing. Because in Rome, there was this disagreement 
over who had more authority, who was, who was more significant. Jewish Christians were saying, we were first. And the Gentile Christians were saying, yeah, but Paul said Christ came for us. So you had this debate going. And so Paul is arguing in the book throughout, trying to say, you know what? You both need Jesus. Whichever group you come from, whatever your origin, everybody needs Jesus because all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And so operate that way. But in understanding that, what Paul is talking about here in, in making that case is, okay, I want to demonstrate that that's the case by showing you that even before the law existed, before Judaism existed under Moses, death still reigned. And that's why he says here, he says, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Why does he use that phrase? Because before Moses, there were no Jews versus Gentiles. There were just people. And he says, death reigned. Everybody was in that place. Everybody was in that position. Everybody was in need of salvation. It's at this point that you bring in what's called original sin. And original sin, again, it depends upon who you're asking what that means. Generally, I would think, what? Most of us would say original sin means what? It means that Adam's sin, Eve's sin, that the first couple's sin has infected everybody else and affected everybody else. Is that, is that a fair definition? Can we all agree? that that's basically what we mean when we think of original sin. In general, that's what it means. But more specifically, you get into a very important distinction when you start talking about the different groups within Christianity. Because Catholics, starting about 200 A.D., about 200 years after Christ, and continuing uh, to today, they would define original sin as being as inheriting physical death but also inheriting spiritual death. And that that is passed on genetically. Okay, That is, Catholics will teach that the moment a person is conceived, okay, they are spiritually dead, separated from God, and they will eventually physically die. That is why, one of the reasons at least, why they practice infant baptism. Because in their estimation, in their understanding, baptism is one of the avenues by which salvation is expressed, is experienced. And so they baptize the infant. Why? To wash them of that status. Okay. So what they will do then is, is they will say, if a child dies before that, Catholics have traditionally, they're adjusting this somewhat uh, because it's never been firm doctrine, but they have traditionally argued for what's called limbo of the infants. It's a location that infants who died before baptism, before this moment, that they went to. It's where they will spend eternity. Okay. Now again, they don't hold firmly to that doctrine. Some don't hold it at all, but that has been their general explanation. Okay. Baptists, however, 
and other Protestants, uh, some of the other Protestants, have argued, yes, we all inherit physical death because of what Adam and he did. But the spiritual death we inherit is not death as in being dead dead. It's death as in, in terms of a, a sinful nature. We are all predisposed. We are all inclined toward that. So strongly inclined toward that, that everyone will sin. We don't believe a person can live a sinless life. Okay, because we are all inclined toward the sinful nature. This is what we believe in. And this is one of those passages that I read earlier here, Romans 5, that leans us toward. Why? Because what does Paul say there in verse 13? Sin is not counted where there is no law. You notice that? That's, that's a big statement, y'all. Sin is not counted where there is no law. What's Paul getting at there? He's getting at, I believe, this idea of understanding that the idea of sin itself is connected to the concept of understanding rebellion, of understanding rejection of God, of understanding God's will or God's presence and turning away from it. Now, the question you may ask may occur to you as I say that is, well, does that then mean those who have never heard are therefore free? They're, they don't have to worry about hell either. Is that, is that what that means? Because you just said where there's no law, where there's no understanding, there's no sin. And I would say, as I believe Paul would say, no, that's not the case at all. Why? Because in Romans chapter 1, Paul says very clearly that creation itself proclaims the presence of God and that our conscience, all of humanity's conscience, speaks to this need, this drawing, this, this reality of coming to God. That that's a, a big part of this whole issue. So therefore what? All are without excuse, is what Paul would say. But what's embedded in that understanding, what's embedded in that Romans 1 passage, you have to understand and perceive what's in creation, right? You have to be able to understand or at least perceive or pick up this, this issue of sin, conscience, all of those other things. You, you have to be able to understand that for Paul's case to be made. And I think that goes to Paul's point here. So that... I believe a child's spiritual status before God, as proposed by Paul and other places in Scripture, is that each of us stands before God in relationship to our own sin. And we stand in God, before God in relationship to our own sin, not Adam's sin, okay, insofar as we understand, we perceive, sin itself and what we've done. So I do, in fact, believe in an age of accountability. Now, it's not just from this passage. There's other realities that I think are important here to, to, to draw that conclusion. Number one, these are other things, other places I'm getting this conclusion from. Number one is the person of Jesus. Jesus himself. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, it says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. How? 
in every respect, in every detail, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The writer of Hebrews says very clearly there, Jesus had to be just like us in every single respect for his offering, for his sacrifice to mean anything. In other words, his sinless life wouldn't have mattered to us. We couldn't connect to it. We couldn't be saved through it unless he was actually like us in every way. Unless he was, in fact, capable of sin. You say, well, wait a minute, Jesus was capable of sin? He said, the writer of Hebrews suggests as much in Hebrews 4.15 as well. For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus here, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. If you're not capable of actually sinning, it's not a temptation by definition. But he goes on to say, yet Jesus was without sin. What is the whole first event in Jesus' ministry about if he wasn't capable of sin when Satan comes to him and tempts him? Jesus was tempted just as we are tempted. That's important in this issue. Because if fallenness is embedded in our nature, in our physical status, then it had to be embedded in Jesus as well. If we're going to say, as Scripture has argued, Hebrews, and there's lots of other passages too, that Jesus was 100% human, and he was 100% human, 100% God. How does that work? I don't know. It just is. That's how he's described in Scripture. Okay. If he was 100% human, then all that we are is who he is. And so if sin is passed on genetically, you have a real problem with Jesus. Now, how do the Catholics fix this? They fix this by a doctrine known as the Immaculate Conception. Now, understand, the Immaculate Conception is not about Jesus' conception. That's a, that's a mistake that a lot of people make. It's not talking about when Jesus was conceived. It's talking about when Mary was conceived. Okay? The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception teaches that when Mary was conceived, when her parents made her, that at that moment, God stepped in and purified her, made her immaculate. Why? So that she could, as a sinless vessel, give birth to Christ. That's what the Catholics teach. That's why you get into this, this whole notion of Holy Blessed Mother and all these other things. They believe Mary was sinless. That's how she could give birth to Jesus, how Jesus could avoid original sin because it wasn't passed from his mother to him. Okay, That's a lot of hoops to jump through to try and fix a situation that I don't believe Scripture requires us to jump through. You have the Bible's own description of sin in several places. To start with, you have this notion in Scripture called the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. We're all familiar, I think, with the first uses of it, Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. 
Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of that, you will surely die. We've all heard that. That's one of the first encounters we have. What does that knowledge of good and evil mean? What is it that is imparted in that? It can't simply be knowing what's right and what's wrong. Because if it's the knowledge of what's right and what's wrong, then how would Adam and Eve know it's wrong to eat of the fruit if they didn't already have the knowledge of what was right and what was wrong? You understand what I'm saying? How could you have a concept of what is wrong if you don't already possess the knowledge of what is right and what is wrong? So what does it mean? Well, you look at other places where it's used, and it's used in numerous other places. I'll say these slowly so hopefully you can get them down so you can look them up. It's used in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It's used in Deuteronomy 139. Deuteronomy 139. It's used in Isaiah 7, 15 through 16. Isaiah 7, 15 through 16. It's used in 2 Samuel 14, 17. 2 Samuel 14, 17. It's used in 1 Kings 3, 9. First Kings three nine, and it's used in Second Samuel nineteen thirty five. In all of these places, you have this phrase: the knowledge of good and evil used, and in every one of them, it's except for the Genesis 2 and 3 and 2 Samuel 14, it's talking about a child arriving at a certain age. It's talking about an age, again, not a fixed age, but a time in a child's life when they are able to choose for themselves what's right and what's wrong, where they're able to make that sort of discerning choice, every one of them. The only exception is 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 17. And there, it's an old man, an older man. He's in his 80s. His name is Barzillai. And he has helped David in his revolt against Absalom. He's, he's, he took care of David. He, he watched over David. He protected him. And so David, once he's restored to the king, he comes to Barzillai and he says, Barzillai, I want you to come live with me in my palace. I want to reward you for being so good to me during that difficult time. And Barzillai says, I'd love to, king, but I can't because I no longer possess the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. What's he saying there? Somebody else, my children, make those decisions for me now. I don't make those decisions. So it's a statement of autonomy. It's a statement of understanding. It's a statement of, of right, the, the ability to do these things. So. But the phrase is not obviously related necessarily unequivocally to salvation, but it does what? It reveals to us that God, in his understanding of of humanity, in his understanding of children in particular, um, was willing to rescue people who were younger than that age of understanding, not hold them accountable for the wrongs that had been done. Deuteronomy 139 makes this very clear. It's one of the uses. 
As for your little ones who said, who you said would become a prey, and your children who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. What's he saying there? He's saying those children who had not yet arrived at that age, I'm not going to hold them accountable for your rebellion against me and staying out of the promised land. Why? Because they didn't understand. They did not yet possess the knowledge of good and evil. I'm not going to hold them accountable. I'm not going to keep them out of the promised land. I'm not going to make them responsible for that. I already mentioned the Romans 1, verse 20 passage, where Paul talks about being able to see God's invisible attributes in creation itself, to understand His divine nature, which again is embedded, uh, embedded within that idea is this capacity for understanding. James 4.17 Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Again, sin is defined in that category, in that, in that phrase, in that sentence as what? An understanding, knowing, and then going against that knowledge. So over and over again, sin is described, it's explained, it's expressed in Scripture as this reality in which understanding is a part of it. Understanding what you're doing is a part of it. And so I believe that there is an age of accountability. I believe that man, humanity, men and women are born with a nature and an environment that will, without exception, lead to sin. Okay. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Why? Because sinful nature is of such a, such a nature such a presence that we will inevitably fall prey to it. The only one who did it is Jesus. Okay. And he was able to do it in part because he's fully God too. So all are responsible for sin, but those who don't understand its nature, those, whether we're talking about children or mentally handicapped individuals who are unable to perceive of these things, I don't believe that God holds them accountable. I don't believe that God will judge them that way. Why? Because I believe over and over and over again, God demonstrated, God revealed, God related that that's, how, that's not how he works. Let me give you one other scripture passage that reveals this, I think. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching at the Areopagus in Athens. It's a place where philosophers would go and they would express their ideas and then the philosophers would all just kind of debate what was just said. And Paul's preaching there. And as he's, as he's preaching, as he's talking, he looks around and there's all these idols everywhere which is obviously what? It's an affront to God. All these idols are an affront to his, to his nature. But he notices one pedestal, one niche that's there that says, to the unknown God. And there's, there's no image there because they're like, we want to make sure we include everybody, so we're going to, in case there's somebody out there we don't know about. And Paul says, I'm here to tell you today about that unknown God. Tell you who he is. And so he begins to preach. But listen to what he says in verse 29. 
the times of your ignorance, God overlooked. Literally, what he says there is, the times of your ignorance, God winked at. Now, he's not talking about sin as a whole. He's not contradicting Romans 1. He's talking about idolatry here. That's, that's the context of the phrase. But he says what? You didn't know in former times, previous to my discussion to you, you didn't know idolatry was a sin. So God overlooked that. God held you accountable for other sins, but for that one, God overlooked. But it's embedded in what? Their knowledge, their ignorance, their understanding. So over and over and over again, Scripture seems to link this idea of sin and the accountability for sin to the knowledge, to the understanding of what it is and what's going on. So the child, the mentally handicapped, I don't believe is held accountable for those things. I, I think consistency with Scripture demands that we draw that conclusion. So we come back to where we started. Shall not the judge of all earth do what is just? God will do what is just. He will judge. He is the righteous judge. And those who are with him, those who are in relationship with him, they will enjoy that relationship throughout eternity. But those who are not, those who have rejected him, those who have turned away, those who have denied his presence, denied his lordship, they will spend eternity in hell separated from God. And I don't take any joy in saying that. I, I, I've seen too many Christians too many times say that phrase as if they're gleeful about it. There's nothing gleeful or happy or joyful about the idea of the concept of hell. Nothing. But it's a reality nonetheless. So what does that mean for us? Well, obviously, on an individual basis, it means we need to respond to God, enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and experience that salvation, that transformation, that hope to a life everlasting. But as we start talking about our relationship with our children, it means that we have a responsibility as parents, as grandparents, as teachers, to begin to train the children toward a correct understanding of what is sin, toward a correct understanding of what is salvation. And we need to understand that, that that's a journey that they're on. They're not going to suddenly click. C.S. Lewis draws the illustration uh, of a child who um, can't separate the, the feastal, the, the fun character of Christmas and Easter from the sacred. The, the, the child is on a journey, he says, that, that you might see a, a small, devout boy growing up in a Christian home. You know, you ask him what Easter's about, and they'll say, Chocolate eggs and Jesus rising. Okay. And they'll make that connection. And, and, and it's, it's okay at that age. 
they're doing the best that they can to assess all that they're taking in. But as they grow, he says, there's a choice that has to be made over exactly what is the priority on their spirit. What gets the emphasis? The chocolate eggs or Jesus rising? And he says, if you choose Jesus rising, you can still taste something of Easter in the chocolate eggs. But if he puts the eggs first, they will soon be no more than any other candy. And neither will Easter. They will take on an independent and therefore withering life of their own. In other words, if Jesus ultimately isn't at the center of what you believe, it's going to lose meaning. Easter is going to lose meaning. Christmas is going to lose meaning. Church is going to lose meaning. Too often we put those things as first. We need to be raising our children. We need to be focusing ourselves on what the real priority is for why we join together, why we celebrate Easter, why we celebrate Christmas. We can enjoy that other as well. But Jesus has to be first. And so he invites us, all of us, to a recognition of his lordship, his centrality, his authority in our life. And he challenges us to make that a priority in all we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come today, God, I pray, first of all, that that I have accurately and appropriately handled your word. I pray that I haven't confused or caused anyone to, to not understand something they, they maybe perhaps previously did. Or, But God, I pray that at the end of the day, we're all responsive to you, to your word, submissive to what you called us to and how you revealed it. That it's not emotions or wishful thinking or anything else that drives our conclusions, but that it's your word. God, I pray especially for anyone here who does not have a relationship with you, who themselves does not have the assurance of a life everlasting with you. God, I pray that you would draw them, that they would respond by by seeking me out or seeking out someone else in their life that they trust, that they know knows you, um, to explain to them, to take them on that journey of discovery. Lord, help us to invest in our children in ways that proclaims to them, reveals to them the truth of who you are, so that as they do grow and as they do arrive at that age of understanding, they would place their life in your hands. We praise you and we thank you for all that you've done. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.